Hello, and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today I have a really weird but really interesting episode in store for you. Today, my lovely hominids, we're going to be discussing a theory on human evolution. A theory that it sounds completely bonkers, and mainstream paleoanthropology claims that it's completely debunked. But it is uh, really cool to think about and even cooler to talk about, nevertheless. I'm going to be discussing the aquatic ape theory, which, you know, it essentially posits, it speculates that the missing link in human evolution, the link that would explain, you know, our numerous differences with our ape cousins, it rose, uh, these differences rose because of an aquatic phase in humanity's past. So, a period of our evolutionary cycle where we were water-based much more than we are now and much more than typically thought. This is a controversial theory which isn't accepted by most mainstream paleoanthropologists, but it does have some backers, which include Sir David Attenborough, and you know him, he's the dude from all those cool nature documentaries on Netflix, on the BBC, like Planet Earth, Our Planet, stuff like that, and because of that, gained a little bit of traction in recent years, a little bit more attention than it has. And also, it seems, just based on the research I've done for this episode, it seems to have gained a little bit more traction in actual anthropology circles. So, David Attenborough's uh, champion champion of this theory, uh, the BBC did a 40-minute radio documentary called The Waterside Ape. And it's notable because he has obviously gone all over the planet filming, like, getting up close and personal with uh, primates and other apes. And so him seeing firsthand the differences between extant apes and us, and then him saying, hey, maybe this water thing does make sense, it's a little bit more compelling than it would seem. Like, because he's not an anthropologist, he's not a primatologist, anything like that. So would it be easy to dismiss? But because of all the work he has done, it does give him a little bit more credibility than you would. But before we get into all that good stuff, the juicy main topic, we're going to dive into the news a little bit. As you may or may not know, depends if you listened to the last couple episodes or not, I was out of town recently on vacation in Colorado, which is a pretty cool state, but very different from New York. So here's an example of what I'm talking about, what I mean. In Denver, Almost everyone stopped at crosswalks and waited for the little green guy to indicate they could walk. I didn't see very many people crossing when it was red, and if they did, a lot of dirty looks. Uh, very little jaywalking, or like that jogging across the street thing to avoid getting hit at the last second. Like I said, very weird. Another time, I was driving on a two-lane road. You know, we got the lines in the middle so I could pass because the guy ahead of me is going a little slow slows down even more so that I can pass him instead of speeding up and trapping me behind him the rest of the way. Weird place. It was also crazy beautiful. Went to a bunch of national parks, a couple cool museums, haunted ice cream place, the Stanley Hotel, of course. Saw a ton of elk, which was really cool. Uh, Mule deer, a few bighorn sheep, a lot of bunnies, a lot of rabbits. Uh, And it was just awesome. Great trip. That said, because I was on vacation, I wasn't doing too much 
uh, interneting. You know, I wasn't searching around for cryptid news for NBA news. And we are in that weird, like, in between no NHL, no NFL, no NBA. There's just baseball on, really, and the Olympics were on, but didn't really catch a ton of them. Team USA won gold medal and total medal count, and also basketball, so that's sick. And, you know, I am into baseball this year, so I don't want to totally discount the MLB. I just don't have the skills, the experience to talk about it, so I'm not going to. So what am I going to do? Because, you know, I've tried to be consistent. I want to be more consistent with how this podcast looks. Need some news, right? Don't like to touch on some of the, obviously, the uh, political or just, like, actual news stuff that's going on. So... I did to search and I find an article on Scientific American about UAPs, or uh, as they're more typically known, more commonly referred to, UFOs. Anyway, this article begins by saying, The Pentagon Report on Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, that was delivered to Congress on, Jul- on June 25th, was intriguing enough to motivate scientific inquiry towards the goal of what these phenomena are. The nature of UAP is not a philosophical matter. It's also not a puzzle that politicians should be asked to resolve. For the same reason that plumbers should not be asked to bake cakes, policymakers or military personnel have insufficient training in science to solve this mystery. And hoping that they will somehow do so is like like the frustrating experiences of the characters in Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. Given these circumstances, scientists should find the answer through the standard scientific process based on a transparent analysis of open data. The task boils down to getting a high-resolution image of UAP. A picture is worth a thousand words, more specifically a megapixel image of the surface of an unusual object, will allow us to distinguish whether it bears the metaphorical label made in China or made in Russia from the alternative made on exoplanet X. The article then goes on to argue for a network of telescopes equipped with the ability to capture these megapixel images of UAPs so that we can figure out more about them. The the author argues that doing so would cost dramatically less than the research into dark matter, of which we still know very little, but have spent a lot of time, money, effort digging into, uh, but that the understanding UAPs could be equally informative into the nature of our reality and our place in the universe. So, you know, you're thinking, who? okay, Mr. Random Author, Scientific American, what's that mean? Uh, well, this dude, in this case, it's a Mr. Avi Loeb, who is the former head of the astronomy department at Harvard. So, in my opinion, this is super cool to see a prolific astronomer, very real scientist, like, highly credentialed, very respected by his peers, openly advocating for further study into the seemingly strange phenomena of UAPs. And that's just like, you know, we love to see that here because I love weird stuff. If you're listening, you probably love weird stuff. So legitimate study into it is just like we love to see. And it's fitting with today's topic. Another thing that we love here at High Tea Obsessed are the Marvel Cinematic Universe shows, movies, all that good stuff. And since we last spoke, the costume for Oscar Isaac's Moon Knight has reportedly been leaked. And that did the rounds on Twitter for a little bit. From what I saw, I thought the outfit, the costume, looked pretty good. Especially because we know most likely it was leaked, so the studio could get a little bit of feedback and be like, oh, it was fake if it was totally hated, or just like, and then tune it up, or uh, if it's like, just tune it up a little bit, keep it the same, that sort of thing. Looked fitting to the character for me. That sort of mummyish look, if you've seen it, um, 
It was kind of dingy, a little bit dirty. It just seemed very, like, worn and real for a character who is possibly uh, insane. Possibly the hero of an a- ancient Egyptian god of the moon. So, I'm super excited for this show. I really hope it slaps. I hope everyone out there is doing their best manifesting that this show will slap and just be amazing. Because the comics that it's based on and a lot of the Moon Knight comics in general are just really awesome. Really, really weird. And just like, he's a great character. So, hopefully the show does it justice. That's pretty much it. And... You know, I'm not too mad about it because today's topic is very complex, so I want to leave enough time for us to give a well-rounded discussion of it without taking up your whole day, your whole weekend, your whole afternoon. So let's dive in. Let me begin this little rant I'm about to go on this little lecture by saying that, although you've probably heard me say I studied history from my master's degree, and I do think history in a lot of ways is sort of related pretty um adjacent to anthropology and they're compatible studies depending on how you study each uh but in addition to that history background my bachelor's degree was in this weird hybrid degree that was basically mostly psych classes which included human development and also evolutionary psychology i'm not claiming at all to be an expert on all or even any of these the topics i'm about to get into But I do know a little bit about them. I have studied it, I have researched it, and I've written papers on a lot of what I'm going to be talking about, specifically natural and sexual selection, the differences between them, and all that stuff. And, you know, did get A's in both those classes, human development and evolutionary psych, so no big deal. The aquatic ape theory was initially proposed by Sir Alistair Hardy, a world-renowned marine biologist an expert in marine ecosystems, and he did this in 1960. However, our dude Hardy first came up with the idea in 1930 when reading uh, Man's Place Among the Mammals by Wood Jones. And so Hardy's reading this, and he notices what is wondering why humans, unlike all other land mammals, had fat attached to their skin, a a subcutaneous fat layer. So Hardy, as we said, marine biologist, he gets to thinking, you know what this skin layer, this fat layer sounds like? Sounds like blubber. And so he gets the wheels turning, starts talking to his friend. They're like, hey, man, uh, you're a young buck. You're young in this field. You don't want to ruin your credentials. So why don't you hold off on this theory? And so he does hold off for 30 years. So he thinks of it in 1930, proposed it in 1960. And his friends, that's just called having good friends because they were looking out for him. And they had his best interest in mind because it remains controversial today. So definitely good job saving his skin because Alistair Hardy was knighted you know so he was very well respected in his field separately from Hardy another scientist by the name of Mats Westenhofer a German scientist obviously he proposed another aquatic ape hypothesis but because he wasn't a Darwinist and his theory had a lot of inconsistencies in it didn't really make a ton of sense it was uh, basically just started even back then, and even most modern proponents of the theory, even like the crazy conspiratorial-inclined ones, the mermaid-inclined ones, don't really buy into what Festenhofer was selling, so I'm just going to ignore one. At this point, the aquatic ape theory we're dealing with is so old that it has been spun off a bunch of times, so we have a lot of variations, and that's despite mainstream science, mainstream anthropology, just like being largely indifferent to it, and sometimes outright hostile. So what I think I'm going to do is we're just going to stick to the basics that the 
uh, Hardy proposed in 1960, and then the few a few expansions by like Elaine Morden, the most famous proponent of the theory, and some other things that like modern studies have brought to light. So let's keep on trucking. We're in 1960 again, and anthropology, and very specifically paleoanthropology, it's in kind of a weird place if we look at it, because in this era, the early to mid 20th century, we have professional and amateur anthropologists, scientists, they're trying to discover the missing link between apes and humans, because they don't really understand how the fossil record that they have at the time, which was more akin to existing apes to extant apes, how we got from there to humans. They're like, no, that we're wrong, like, we're thinking this dude, this Australopithecus, stuff like that, those are actually the ancestors of apes, not humans because the brain isn't big enough. And if you think about it, genetically, we're super similar to apes, but we're also just, like, so far removed from them. It's really, really different. And it's because we didn't actually evolve from apes. Obviously, we have common ancestors stretching back millions of years. In 1912, an English... um, In 1912, English anthropologists fell for a hoaxed missing link, which is today called the Piltdown Man. And that was a forged human ancestor stole that matched what scientists, what anthropologists were looking for to be the missing link. It had the ape-like jaw, bone structure, but a larger brain cavity. And part of the reason that the Anglo-European circle of anthropologists were so eager to accept this discovery as legit was because of racism and Eurocentrism. They wanted to believe that they were superior to other races and nationalities, so the English and other Europeans, they kind of leapt at the chance to say that modern humans began to develop in England, and not in Africa. Uh, this racism and prejudice in anthropology and science and evolution, all those studies, follows generations of horrible, disgusting things like eugenics, and it's just it's just like a terrible stain on the study of genetics and evolution. An unfortunate misappropriation of Darwin's theories. Another reason that the Piltdown Man was accepted as legit, if we want to be a little bit more fair to the scientists, to the anthropologists, is that a lot of them at the time were convinced about the bone structure matched what the missing link would look like. So there was that confirmation bias, but it was also like pure scientific theories, not 100% racism and Eurocentrism. So that's just, if we want to be fair, we don't have to be, whatever. Supposedly, American anthropologists were just out on the Piltdown Man. They were like, no, not real, not buying it, Europeans suck. And I think the that's like the reasoning behind this sale of the Piltdown Man in American academic circles was just because they didn't want to give England and Europeans credit for having evolved first. Very weird stuff. But the Piltdown forgery was proven a hoax in 1953. I am going to do an episode on the Piltdown Man, this whole debacle, this whole thing. I'm going to dive into it in way more detail in a later episode. But I do think it is relevant for today because it kind of sheds the light on thinking of the anthropological community when this radical aquatic ape theory was proposed. Because, you know, they just had, they had a lot of egg on their face. They just fell for this huge hoax. And now, seven years later, this huge thing that's going to upend all the dogma, all the paradigm. Like, they've been saying for years and years humans descended from our yeah the ancestors of humans descended from trees into the grasslands of africa 
and started going upright. Now this theory says they descended from the trees into the uh, like shallow waters. So that huge change, no one's going to buy it anyway. And it's just going to make them look like they have no idea what they're talking about again. And especially because, like the Piltdown Man discovery, quote-unquote discovery, this theory came from someone outside of the anthropological circles again. So it made sense that the guard would be up that they wouldn't want to give this a lot of attention. It's an example of how political a lot of these theories and discoveries are and how like they just become hot-button issues, uh, sometimes because the lack of serious inquiry into crazy theories allows them to live on. And I don't think the aquatic ape theory is necessarily this like bonkers theory. But because there hasn't been a ton of rigorous inquiry into it, for reasons we'll get into later, it has become sort of a lightning rod. Because a lot of lay people are like, this is a conspiracy. And most anthropologists are just like, it's a dumb idea, so we're not going to look into it. And you guys just don't understand anthropology enough to get why it doesn't work. But anyway, we're finally here and finally didn't explain what this theory is. Essentially, in its simplest form, the aquatic ape theory attempts to explain notable differences between apes and humans, so modern apes and modern humans, by hypothesizing that the split in our ancestral ranks was when the ancestors of humanity descended from the trees, not to the plains, the grasslands, the savannas of Africa, but to the water. Now, in its purest form, its most believable form, this theory is not saying that we were mermaids at some point, we weren't. We weren't deep ocean dwellers in this theory's mind, but that we spent enough time in and around the water that it was evolutionarily evolutionarily advantageous to develop tra traits and features that would allow us to survive this interaction with the water and to like get food from the water and stuff like that. So what are, are some of these traits, some of these features? So if you look at a human and you look at an ape, one of the first things you'll notice, probably the first thing you'll notice is... Apes have a lot more hair than us. Proponents of the aquatic ape theory have argued that this could be rooted in our aquatic past because if you look at animals like dolphins and whales, you know, manatees, dugons, aquatic-based mammals, they're primarily or entirely hairless. And they're not, again, they're not being crazy. They're not saying, hey, humans descended from whales and dolphins. They're saying water-based mammal, no hair. Humans might have been water-based at some point, no hair. So opponents of this theory are like, hey, guess what, dummies? You know what else spends a lot of time in water and is also a mammal? Beavers, otters, bears, platypi, very, very, very furry. Advocates of the aquatic ape theory have a counter right back. They're ready to rock. Say, look at hippos, not furry animals at all, semi-aquatic. But also, if we look at creatures like rhinos and elephants, uh, they're mainly hairless, and it is believed that they also had aquatic ancestors in their past. So it's not like every animal that's aquatic or every mammal that's aquatic or semi-aquatic has no hair, but almost all of the mammals that are hairless, besides like naked mole rats, have descendants that came from the water. So that's pretty interesting if we think about it, you know? Uh, it kind of checks out a little bit. But water's kind of cold, right? Especially if you're in it all the time. You know, if you've ever been at the pool, even in the hot day, you're going to get out, you're going to want that towel on you immediately, you're going to get real cold. So, wouldn't it be helpful for us to have uh, our fur still? Well, well, proponents of the aquatic ape theory point out that this could be the reason for humanity's subcontaneous fat layer, which differs from other land mammals. 
Then Dean goes that, you know, like this blubber-like layer of fat that humanity has would have been evolutionarily beneficial because it would allow us to lose the fur, which helps with diving, with swimming, stuff like that. But it also keeps us warm uh, once the fur is gone. So we're still able to stay warm, helps with buoyancy, things of that nature. But we have the fur gone as well. People who support this theory also point out that humans have the ability to get grossly obese all of, over their bodies. You know, we see their face, their fingers, their not just their belly, like most animals, all over their body gets fat, like their arms. And that's because of that fat layer that goes all over the body. And supposedly, according to proponents of this theory, other animals are unable to do so. However, um, studies have shown that I that apes in captivity are able to get similar levels of uh, like fat all over their bodies to humans. And we've all seen pictures of like obese tigers, stuff like that. So not the strongest aspect of the theory. In addition, staying on this like fat train, if you will, human babies are among the chubbiest babies at birth of any mammal. And this is particularly noticeable in relation to other apes. And the belief is like, you know, if we're in and around water, being able to float right away helps. And of course, babies have the diving reflex. They know to hold their breath when, right when they're born. And they can sort of swim right, right away, you know, when they're born. And they do lose these reflexes over time and have to relearn them. We all have to relearn them. But it's like, why do we need that if we weren't spending time in water? However, if we look at it, um, anthropology is a huge field. There are other theories explaining this subcutaneous layer of fat in humans. One theory is that it was necessary to develop this fat to store energy during endurance running or persistence hunting of prey animals. So endurance running, it's what it sounds like. Humans have more endurance and thus are able to keep hunting more than other animals. Right, because like other animals are almost all faster than us, but what do we have? We got that non-stop endurance. We're just going to keep coming. We're going to not give up. So the fat layer, that storage, that energy storage would obviously help with that long distance running and hunting. Another theory is that the fat layer rose not from natural selection and that it helped keep us warm at night after losing our fur, which is like the main theory, or that it helped with the water-based adaptations I was just talking about, but that our fat layer is a product of sexual selection. So let's back it up. What is sexual selection? So if you remember our guy Darwin, way back when, he proposes natural selection. It's uh, boiled down, while not entirely correct, boiled down to survival of the fittest. And so natural selection says features and traits of a species that allow it to survive <clears throat> are the ones that have survived to modern day and the way, the reasons that species look and act the way they do. So opponents of this look at an animal like, say, the peacock, and they say, look at the peacock. It's a dumb animal. It's not very good at surviving, and it sits out right in its environment. How could its adaptations have arisen because it helped the creature survive? So what do we counter it with? We say, okay, so maybe in addition to natural selection, it's not just those traits that help an animal literally to survive and thus in theory, because they survive, they're able to pass down their genes because they're alive to reproduce. Maybe it's the features that allow an animal to be more successful at mating in general and are more um, attractive to the opposite sex 
those are the ones that are passed on because those animals that are more attractive to the opposite sex are going to be having more sets and thus reproducing more, right? They're going to have more mating success, more offspring. Even if those features don't help you survive, more offspring are going to survive if you have more, I guess. And so that's just like, that's where sexual selection comes in. One theory of this subcutaneous fat layer in humans is that it aided in sexual selection and survived that way. So how could that be? Possibly visibly fatter hominids where, you know, you look at them, you're like, okay, that guy's eating good. That means I'm going to eat good if I mate with him, something like that. Uh, it could also be that visibly fatter hominids might have been more indicative of uh, reproductive viability, something like that. And so those features are the ones that have endured over time. And it could also explain, the sexual selection could explain features like hairlessness, because humans have the same density of hair follicles as most apes. It's just the actual hair that we don't have. So it's possible, and uh, this hairlessness, it's different if you look like men and women, right? Most women can't grow beards, but on the face, the hair is different, the hair level. And that could have been a result of sexual selection. And it could also, sexual selection could explain differences in male and female fat storage areas. But if we're back into the aquatic ape theory, we're back talking on our main topic, no more, well, there will be more digressions, but no longer on that digression. Other features of humanity that could lend themselves to an aquatic period of evolution include that humans are much, much sweatier than our ape cousins. And this is because humans have different sweat glands than apes. So apes and other land mammals besides humans have apocrine sweat glands, maybe apocrine. And these sweat glands uh, coat their hairs with smelly sweat that is sort of viscous and oily. And smelly in a different way than human sweat is smelly. Humans have these glands, we have them in our armpit and pubic regions. Uh, but over the rest of our body we have eccrine glands. And apes do have these ecrine glands as well, but they're primarily concentrated on their hands and feet, the areas that they have that aren't super hairy, and that's believed to have assisted with gripping. Another animal that is uh, super sweaty outside of water is the nor northern fur seal, which also has that blubber and some hair going on. And it sweats a ton out of water, because when it's in the water, gotta stay warm. Out of the water, it's, it's fat. Gotta sweat that heat out, you know? Gotta stay alive. Gotta maintain homeostasis. So proponents of the aquatic ape theory, they point to sweating and say that maybe it arose as a means to keep cool on land when the heat from the subcutaneous fat layer became a burden and wasn't necessary. Another theory for the development of these ecrine glands is that it helped sweat out the salt and maintain the salt homeostasis in humans through reverse osmosis. Opponents of the aquatic ape theory, they're equipped, they're ready to rock. They have a lot of explanations for why humanity has developed different sweating. Again, they say it would have been adapted for that endurance running, that persistence hunting. Uh, would have allowed humans to hunt during the hottest part of the days when prey and other animals that have physical advantages over them would have been asleep. Predators are sleeping during the day as well, so there's less competition, less danger. And because they're able to sweat out their heat better than animals, uh, the excess heat and keep their body cool, they're able to capitalize on that. And again, in my opinion, I think that sexual selection could have played a part in this development because modern studies have shown that women in blind scent tests have chosen, they tend to choose their partners, like sweat, stanked up garb, 
as smelling the best, sometimes even smelling good, when choosing between several articles of clothing that have been sweat on by different men. So these tests, were, it sounds weird. Uh, what they do is they get a group of men and they have them, you know, do same exercises, similar like body types, stuff like that. Get them all like they're no deodorant, anything like that. Get their t-shirts all gross, sweaty. No way to identify who they are. Put them in a locker. Have women come one at a time. They smell, let's say there's four, they smell the four and they're like gross. Oh, that's kind of nice, disgusting, horrible. And it tends to be that the ones that they say smell either the least bad or good are their partners. So how does this play in? I'm just thinking maybe that the difference in the way humans had developed their sweat was just more attractive to members of the opposite sex. Because there, you have to remember there was interbreeding between the different um, relic hominids back then. I guess they weren't relic but just uh, hominids back then. So maybe just like somehow developed via sexual selection. I mean, most of these features, it's not just any one thing. It's sexual selection, natural selection, random traits are grouped with other traits. on. So like the gene could represent, it makes like this thing that either helps with sexual or natural selection, but also it's like freckles like how what are, what are the advantage of freckles maybe they're just paired with another gene that does actually help survive something like that another aspect of human evolution that proponents of the aquatic ape theory latch onto are tears and the idea is basically that tears um other animals that have tears the way that humans do are like uh, birds that dive into the ocean and saltwater crocodiles. Crocodiles that only go in freshwater don't have these tears. Birds that only, like animals that only go into freshwater don't have salty tears. But animals that do go into saltwater do have these salty tears. So it's like weird that humans also have that. Of course, crying does have a lot of other explanations and mostly it is believed to have arisen because of the social benefit of tears and like how those impacted and increased survivability so what does that mean what do we use tears for you know when we're sad we express regret maybe we're expressing sorrow um invoking mercy maybe because you think you're gonna die things that generally would just give you a better puncher's chance of surviving in an ancestral setting also, very notable, babies cry a lot, right? We all know that. And why do babies cry? They cry because they need something or they're in danger or hurt. So that scream, that loud, horrible wail with the tears, um, it alerts the mother, it alerts other people around that this baby needs something, it needs help, it needs to be saved, and that's also going to increase survivability. Two other big features of humanity that were proposed by Alistair Hardy to possibly have an explanation rooted in an aquatic past are bipedalism, that's the main one, and also the position of the trachea in the throat, the lower neck area. So bipedalism is one of the huge questions of human evolution. Why did it happen? Like, So there's a ton of explanations for it, a lot of theories, and none's like really proven yet, but well, obviously because they're all theories, but... The main one, like the typical one we're going to get, we're going to think about when we think of why humans stood up, 
is that it was beneficial for life on the savannas and on the grasslands of Africa, either because, and there's a bunch of different variations of why, but the setting's usually the same. And usually because, like, this bipedalism, it helped keep our hands free for tools, for hunting, uh, helped us to see over the tall grasses, stuff like that. But the aquatic ape theory takes umbrage with these explanations. They say, okay, kind of made sense what you're saying, I understand. But why do primates like baboons who live on the plains and savannas of Africa, why don't they have an upright gait? It's kind of weird. And it's like, oh, why don't they? Because they are mostly walking on their for- uh, on all fours. One context in which all apes, including baboons, do adopt a bipedal and upright walking stature is when wading in water. Part of that is because the uh, increased buoyancy, some of that is to keep their head above water, so, and like the buoyancy so it's easier to keep their body up in that with their little legs. Um, so if humanity needed to adapt to wading in water often, it would have made sense that this bipedalism became our dominant feature and our differentiator between us and other apes. Proponents of this theory also argue that evidence now shows that humanity's bipedalism started to crop up in periods when the savanna wasn't yet present. Other theories, other explanations suggest that walking was adaptive, like I said, because it freed the hands for tool creation and tool utilization, that it was beneficial for endurance and thus hunting, and it was helpful for walking long distances and migration, stuff like that. Like I said, a lot of explanations because this upright locomotion, it's like the central question of evolution. I do think, in my opinion, that this is one of the strongest possible aspects of the aquatic ape theory is the, as an explanation for bipedalism. Because if humanity's ancestors were, um, you know, developing and evolving near water, it would make sense that standing upright to wade would evolve. Bays and shallows of water are an amazing place to locate food even today, even with all the pollution stuff. And we do see that humanity has tended to build near sources of water. And that's true for all of Homo sapien time, right? Civilizations tend to crop up, biggest settlements tend to crop up near water, specifically fresh water. Um, but like any body of water, that's where humans are going to congregate. Obviously, it is a very modern development and... Um, after whatever this aquatic phase of evolution was in. But it doesn't change the fact that every life form needs water. Everyone needs a drink once in a while. And in addition to needing that drink, the shallows are a great place to locate food that is rich in like all sorts of nutrients and stuff like snails, mollusks, um, maybe like the occasional fish, shellfish, stuff like that. Things that would have been huge for ancestral humans developing uh, big brains and stuff like that and just like surviving in general so i do think like if we look at it human like humans developing nets to water made sense because water would have been a big part of it's a big part of any species survival especially like an intelligent species so i think it makes sense that features that would have allowed us to survive our interactions with water and to take advantage of water sources would have been beneficial and thus led to greater survival in species that had those traits that allowed them to better utilize water and like resources and stuff like that and thus survived and been passed on down and down and down and it is this like water side but not necessarily water dwelling aspect of the aquatic ape theory that has started to gain traction in 
um, modern and like the recent years. Another thing that uh, proponents of this point to in addition to the bipedalism, our feet are obviously different than apes, right? We have feet, they have like hand-like feet. We have uh, more flipper-like in comparison, uh, at least in shape size, like our, the way our feet are shaped. And we also have a lot of nerves in our feet, especially in comparison to our primate cousins. And that doesn't really seem to jive with walking around um, a bunch because, you know, we're walking around barefoot and it sucks. Even if there's no Legos back then, there's rods, stitchers, thorns, all that type of stuff. So having a lot of nerve endings in your feet and the hot savannah is not great. But it's helpful if you're feeling around in tidal pools looking for shellfish and other like nice, nice tasty snaps right under the sand. So I don't know. I mean, that does make sense, but I'm... If you walk around the beach, you're also going to step on things that hurt, too. So it might just be neither thing really explains. Neither th- uh, theory really explains why we have tons of nerve endings in our feet. The final piece of Hardy's initial aquatic ape theory, which has been expanded by a few individuals over time, is that humans have a trachea in their throat lower in their neck than most other mammals. So the trachea and larynx in humans are in the lower throat in the neck. Other primates, it's up much higher. And this kind of manifests itself. And so uh, all apes throughout their life, except for humans, and human babies up until about six months, they're able to drink water and breathe at the same time. Humans are not. And don't try to do this. I did try it a little bit when I read this. Uh, and you could choke. and it, But it is not possible. You can't drink water and breathe at the same time. So Hardy theorized that this could help with diving, breath control, things of that nature. And other explanations for breath control. And there are a ton, again, because breath control is another of the central like questions of evolution. Because that's what allows us to speak while apes cannot. So theories are basically that the bipedalism freed up space in our chests for muscles to develop that in turn led to breath control. Or, like, things of that nature. And again, there are a bunch. But, anyway, after Hardy, the main proponent of the aquatic ape theory was Elaine Morgan, a Welsh researcher. Like Hardy, Morgan was not a trained anthropologist. However, unlike her, uh, unlike Hardy, she wasn't a scientist. She was a uh, television and feminist writer. And her initial work, uh, like, proposing the aquatic ape theory was super beloved by lay people, but ignored by academics. So in 1972, Elaine Morgan publishes her first book, The Descent of Women, and it's based on Hardy's initial aquatic ape theories. But it adapted it and um, gave it a more feminist bent, explained the differences between, between men and women. So Morgan theorized that sexual adaptations, including like humans' proclivity for frontward-facing copulation, was derived from water-based existence, and this impacted the evolution of female genitalia and the female orgasm. Now, Morden thought that the aquatic ape theory was very interesting, and she just wanted it to be talked about more by both mainstream anthropologists and laypeople. She was just like, hey, this seems logical to me if I look at it, if I think about it. Probably should be studied. Unfortunately, mainstream anthropology just ignored her work. Laypeople went bonkers over it, and that is why... Uh, her book was an international bestseller, and why this theory remains a piece of fascination today. So in addition to the sexual differences that are explained 
by this theory to Elaine Morgan. She also theorizes that the aquatic phase explains breath control and speaking. Morgan has suggested in uh, like TED Talks and her writings that humans have a level of breath control only seen in animals like marine birds, which use their breath control for diving. She says that this ability to control her breath would initially have helped with diving in our case as well and other facets of aquatic existence, and it's absent in other apes, and that's why we can speak while apes cannot. Again, like the diving reflex, human babies are born with the reflex to hold their breaths underwater. Other animals obviously can hold their breath when they're underwater, but apparently they lack the ability to do so. Like, they can't just hold their breath go whenever they want. Humans can just do that. Opponents of the aquatic ape theory, like I said, have a lot of theories on why we can speak. Was that because, like, which came first, bipedalism or breath control? Yeah. Opponents of the aquatic ape theory do have a ton of explanations for our ability to speak. Uh, they do admit, you know, that obviously it has benefited from our breath control and vice versa, but they also theorize that it's the bipedalism, which freed up muscles in the upper body, that in turn developed to control breath. I would also guess that endurance running and persistence hunting theories speculate that it developed in conjunction with those abilities, because obviously if we're running, we need to be able to control our breath. You can't just breathe as much as you want. And hunting, you've got to be quiet sometimes, you got to hold your breath, you can't be making a ton of noise. So to me, it's sort of a chicken and egg situation. Standing up leads to the development of speech, most likely, but what leads to us standing up? In addition to this evidence I've already discussed, proponents of the aquatic ape theory point to two sort of ready-made adaptations that humans have when they spend a lot of time in water. So what I mean by this, these ready-made adaptations, I'm talking about things that it seems like, if you just look at it quickly, we're sort of tailor-made to adapt to the water in ways that we aren't born with. For an example of this, um, apes in studies have been shown to not necessarily be born with an innate fear of snakes, but they're able to learn one very quickly. And so there have been studies where baby apes will observe an adult ape reacting negatively to a snake, and sometimes just like a video of an adult ape reacting negatively towards a snake. And then the baby, Ned Simon, encounters a snake-like stimuli, will react negatively, parroting the, uh, what they saw. It's similar to that idea, but on a physical level. So have you ever heard of surfer's ear? Essentially, surfer's ear is this, essentially, surfer's ear is this, like, bony growth that develops in people who spend a lot of time in cold water without adequate protection. So obviously we see this in people like surfers, hence the name. But we also see it in people who spend a lot of time diving for pearls and stuff like that. And there's fossil evidence that can be tracked to ancient ancestors like Australopithecus. And it's also present in um, the remains of modern humans like indigenous North and South Americans. So my question about all this, is this really adaptive or is it maladaptive? Because surf reserve can lead to total deafness, right? That's the worst case, but it also can cause pain, discomfort, hearing loss in general. And it's, it, it is treatable, fortunately, for those who have it. But it's just like, those don't sound like they're going to help. And I think proponents of the theory kind of say, you know, help keep water out when we're diving deep, help with pressure, stuff of that nature. And maybe like appendix, uh, the development of surface ear was beneficial in our ancestral past, but now isn't. But that's just speculation on my point. 
Another aspect of humanity today that seems ready-made to adapt to water-heavy existence is evidence in swimmers. Because So if we looked at Olympic swimmers and Olympic runners, huge difference in body fat percentage. Olympic swimmers are expending similar, if not greater, calories during their exercises and their training and their um, events than runners. Despite this, they generally have a higher body fat content and percentage. And so people who buy into the aquatic ape theory, they say, hey, kind of weird. And it seems like when humans spend more time in water, they develop more fat in order to combat that cold. Weird if we're not used to like, why is that just ready to happen if we don't have an ancestral relationship with water? You know, I think there could be other explanations behind this as well. And it could just be that bodies of runners and swimmers are different, right? Because as we know, causation does our correlation does not equal causation. It could be that there's a third thing causing this disparity in body fat type. Maybe people who are able to retain fat just happen to be better swimmers. Or maybe people who are able to extremely burn fat have, like tend to be better runners. So those are like the main theory, like the main tenets of the aquatic ape theory and the most reasonable ones in my opinion. And I did leave some meat on the bone for this. So if you want to do some research and I left sources in the show notes for you, if you want to dive in on your own and dig into this, there's a little bit of room for you to do so. So where do I come down on all this? I think, like others have said, the aquatic ape hypothesis is an umbrella theory. And I think it does strive to explain too many features of humanity, features that have developed over millions of years, and it, it tries to just group all the explanations for them under this one theory. But I think it does have a little bit... I think it definitely deserves more credit than it has gotten in the anthropological circles to date. Uh, so I do think that the waterside ape theory holds a lot of water. And water, whether it be coastal lakes, uh, whether it be lakes, coastal uh, shores, stuff like that, rivers, springs, streams, ponds, any water really, I think it did have a role in shaping human evolution. And I think most people who buy into the theory and advocate for it, I think they come down closer on this end of it and not on the mermaid end. But I think that a lot of the reason it's dismissed is that anthropologists pretend that people who want to study this theory want to believe that we came from mermaids. And so it's hard for real anthropologists to date into it and to study it and to like get a good faith attempt at proving or understanding this theory. Also, you know, it's really silly to try to use one theory on either side, aquatic ape or non-aquatic ape, to explain why humanity evolved as we did. There's a million, a trillion, a billion features and reasons and, like, um, little developments that led to why Homo sapiens look and act and think and talk and all those things that we do now. So I think it's probably, you know, if I'm coming down, I'm just off the jet saying what I think. Then it probably is a little bit of water-based development, a little bit of endurance running and hunting-based stuff. Sexual selection obviously came on, played a bit of a role, of course. And those hanger-on traits I was talking about, things that just developed because they are linked with other traits that lead to um, uh, sexual or survival success. 
So this topic, it reminds me of my opinion on philosophy. And it's just like, hey, why can't it be a little bit of both? You know, like the genie says, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. And I think that in general, we like to think that scientists, historians, anthropologists, academics, basically, are using and are super locked into the scientific method. And I think to a large extent, they are. But I also think that they aren't as open to some ideas, theories, beliefs as they should. And some of that definitely stems from a lack of translating what they know, because, you know, in these skills, these studies, these disciplines are all so specialized that it's hard to translate what is known as common fat to them to a level that we can understand. But I do think that we've seen, like, there is legitimate evidence for a lot of these weird fringe, quote-unquote, fringe ideas and theories and stuff. And um, those, because, like, there isn't a lot of actual academic uh, research into it, it allows people like Graham Hancock and others to exploit the lack of actual study into their weird conspiracy beliefs. So an example of this is that there is basically this conspiracy that, you know, XYZ civilizations were here before Columbus, and they were actively trading with indigenous North and South Americans, and this is basically ignored and sometimes ridiculed by mainstream historians and archaeologists. So people are into French history, they cast this, they're like, hey, this is a weird conspiracy to prop up Columbus, one of the worst humans ever. And, you know, as someone who studied history, I don't think anyone hates Christopher Columbus more than historians. And I think that there's a lot of acceptance to pre-Columbian, European, and possibly even Asian and African visitation to the New World. It's just like I said, we have these Graham Hancock types who are preaching their conspiracies, so then when a historian or archaeologist, anthropologist are like, hey, there does seem to be a little bit of smoke behind, or fire behind the smoke, they can't really look into it because there's all that baggage. And then again, there's also the adaptability of these fringe theories and ideas where it's like, okay, yep, you did disprove that aspect, but that's because of the Illuminati or like, some other conspiracy, it wasn't a real investigation into it, of course you're going to say that, or they just adapt and change their fringe theory to ignore that uh, debunked part. And because this topic is controversial, and right now considered to be on the fringe of paleoanthropology, I did want to do my due diligence and post in the show notes uh, sources. So I have the websites, articles, and books that I consulted while researching this topic. But, like Matt from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia said, science is a liar sometimes. So maybe this will emerge as the dogma, as the paradigm someday. Anyway, I did include a variety of articles that support and oppose this theory. And some of these are uh, peer-reviewed articles and books that you probably can't access unless you are subscribed to a database or are in like college school some way. So, with our main topic out of the way, let's get into my recommendations for the past week. I've been reading a good bit again, feels good, back in the swing of things, and so I'd like to recommend not one, but two books to you guys. One is The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which tells the story of four members of the Blackfeet Nation who made a mistake a decade ago and are now paying for it. And they're being pursued by a supernatural entity 
straight out of the stories that they've disregarded from their culture and childhood, basically. And it's a really, really, really unnerving and weird book. It keeps you guessing and guessing wrong all the way through. You don't really know what's going to happen. It keeps you on your toes. And it's just, it's amazing. It's really good. And I definitely recommend it. I'd also like to recommend The Mist by Stephen King. And I've read it a few times, and it's just, it's really, really good. It's one of the few pieces of his work that I actually like. Sorry, Crossland. Finally, I downloaded an emulator. I've been crushing Pokemon Fire Red, the one from the Game Boy Advanced. It just slaps, you know. Game absolutely holds up. And I've just taken too many hours, too many minutes, too much time in general into that game. And every year, it seems like, for about a week, I get this huge hankering to play Pokemon again. And this emulator just allowed me to satisfy it in a big, big way. But that's basically all I got for you today. So I do think next week, we're going to be doing that episode on the Tim Donahue NBA ref betting scandal thing. But it might be too big for one episode, and I might end up doing a mini-series in the off-season or something like that. Still up in the air, still not to decide. Um, and if I don't do that, I'll probably keep it on the similar topic and do a roundup of NBA conspiracy theories um, that are smaller than that huge scandal. As always, if you did what you're hearing, I'd love, I'd welcome a five-star review on the pro- on the podcast catcher of your choice, or at least a rating. That'd be sick. You know, I'd really appreciate either one. And if you don't like what you're hearing, you don't dig it, you're uh, building a wall or something. Uh, definitely give me some feedback on Instagram or Twitter or on the email, the show's email. So on Instagram, you can find us at High T Obsessed Podcast on Instagram and at High T O Podcast on Twitter. And the email address is High T Obsessed Podcast at gmail.com. I do welcome all feedback, good or bad, helps me improve, helps me figure out what works, what's not working. Just figure out if anyone besides me gets my jokes, basically. And that's all I got. So, until next time, keep on evolving, my friends.